Let us turn in the sacred scriptures to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. The first eight verses will be the text for the sermon. Uh, This will also be a preparatory sermon for the Lord's Supper. So after the scripture reading, we will read the first part of the form so that the sermon comes in light of the call to prepare. Micah chapter 6. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against His people, and He will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The Lord's voice cries to the city, Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod. Who has appointed it? Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? And the short measure that is an abomination? Shall I count pure those with the wicked scales and with the bags of deceitful weights? Remember, weighing scales were used in the market, and if you had things that were different weights when you were buying and selling, you could cheat. For her rich men are full of violence. Her inhabitants have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away but shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread the olives but not anoint yourselves with oil, and make sweet wine but not drink wine, for the statutes of Omri are kept. All the works of Ahab's house are done, and you walk in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore, you shall bear the reproach of my people. You have these little booklets in front of you in the pew, and I would like to draw your attention to page 8 in that booklet where we read the customary introduction to the Lord's Supper form and then the call for Preparation and self-examination. 
Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Supper has been instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of this institution as they are described by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is My body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. That we may now then celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort, it is necessary rightly to examine ourselves. The call to self-examination consists of three parts. First, let each of you consider carefully your sins and the curse due for them so that you loathe and humble yourself before God considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that He, rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Second, let each of you examine whether you also believe this trustworthy promise of God, that all your sins are forgiven only through the cross of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is graciously imputed to you as your own. Indeed, so completely as if you personally had satisfied for all your sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Third, let each of you carefully examine your own conscience to see if you are determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and to walk sincerely before His face, striving to lay aside all hostility, hatred, and envy, resolving from this day forward to live in true love and unity with your neighbor. All those then who are of this mind, God will certainly receive in grace as worthy partakers of the table of Christ. On the contrary, those who do not believe this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Therefore, according to God's word, we admonish all those who are guilty of and continue in the following sins to abstain from the table of the Lord and declare that they have no part in the kingdom of Christ. And then here follows the Ten Commandments. All who refuse to trust in the Lord alone, serve or worship Him in their own way, abuse the name of the Lord, do not diligently attend the worship services and neglect the holiness of the Lord's day, rebel against authority, violate human life, cherish hatred and bitterness, do not keep themselves sexually pure, all who by stealing or extravagance lead a worldly life, liars, backbiters, and slanderers, 
all who show themselves to be unbelieving by leading an offensive life. As long as they continue in such sins, they shall not take of this food, which Christ has ordained only for his believers. Otherwise, their judgment and condemnation will be the heavier. But, beloved brothers and sisters, this warning is not intended to discourage those believers with broken and contrite hearts, as if no one might come to the Lord's Supper except the sinless. We do not come to this supper to declare that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves. But on the contrary, groaning under the body of this death, we seek our life outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. We come confessing that we do have many shortcomings, that we do not have perfect faith. We do not serve God with sufficient zeal, but we must struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and against the evil lusts of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit makes us sorry for our shortcomings, gives us the desire to live according to all God's commandments, and helps us to fight against unbelief. Therefore, we can rest assured that no sin or weakness which still remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God in grace and mercy as worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. Beloved congregation of the Lord, have you ever had it said to you, perhaps an exasperation, so just go ahead and sue me. Sometimes good friends are saying this to each other in a lighthearted way. Maybe someone was supposed to do something, it didn't get done. Someone's getting on your case for not getting it done. And sometimes you'll say in a lighthearted way to each other, well, just sue me. But at other times, you can say it to try to make a point to a complaining and accusing opponent. If you think you're so right and I'm so wrong, just go ahead and sue me and see in the court of law how ridiculous your accusations are. I don't have to tell you that accusations and threats of lawsuits are an ever-increasing phenomenon in our Western culture. Sadly, one lady even won a lawsuit against the manufacturer of a microwave because it didn't have a warning label that said, don't dry your dog off in here. People are suing each other to get rich off their own sorrows and the mistakes of others. And just listen to the insurance broker when you're getting your auto or home policy renewed. Describe to you why you need millions of dollars of liability. And just when you think you've heard it all, our text provides us with a unique lawsuit in the history of mankind. This one is initiated by God Himself against His own covenant people. But in a surprising turn of events, when they're all in the courtroom and the proceedings are starting, God turns the tables on them and says, you start. You go ahead and sue me. You say I've let you down. You say I've failed you. Well, then make your charges. And we'll hear, hear them in the back and forth of this lawsuit, this divine lawsuit, with a surprising, unexpected ending. And you and I can't listen to this as spectators. 
we are drawn into this lawsuit. During this week of preparation, the Lord is saying, do you have any complaints against me? Make them. And you will hear in this passage God's defense, and you will see visibly next week God's defense. This ultimately points us to the Lord Jesus Christ who entered this world and this lawsuit. So here's our theme. The Lord sues His wayward people. We see devastating questions, wild offers, and clear requirements. The Lord sues His wayward people. First then, devastating questions. Can you imagine God in a lawsuit with human beings as the defendant? God in the dock, C.S. Lewis called it. That's because as human beings, we as sinners think we have every right and reason to judge God. And the language of our text is all about lawsuits and court cases and arguments because words in verse 1 like plead your case and complaint in verse 2, these are the technical Hebrew terms for the courtroom. And in this graphic way, God wants to capture the attention and the heart of His people. He even pulls off his royal robes as judge of all the earth and sits as the defendant and wait till you hear his testimony. God appoints the prophet Micah to preside, and you don't see this in the English, but it's clear in the Hebrew. In verse 1, we find all Israel addressed, y'all here, to use a colloquialism. And then he also speaks to Micah, singular. Verse 1 The next line, you, singular, you, Micah, arise, plead the case. They didn't have the judge or jury system then, and the elders of the people were judges, but they're drawn into the lawsuit with the Lord. And so the prophet Micah is the spokesman. He has to step in. And God also says, I'm making my case before the mountains and the hills. Back in Deuteronomy, when God made His covenant, He named the mountains and hills as witnesses of His spiritual commitment to His people. Why mountains? Well, because from our point of view, they last forever. They don't change. And this is how long the commitments and responsibilities and blessings of the covenant are to last. But there's also another reason why the mountains get pulled in. Where has Israel committed spiritual adultery against their God? The prophets say it over and over and over again. On every mountain and upon every green hill. Pagans did that because the higher you were in elevation, supposedly the closer you are to God. If the mountains had to testify what has happened on them, what a sorry story that would be. If God called on your internet connection to witness how you've treated Him and how you have been faithful or unfaithful to Him, what would your internet history show? If your heart and mind were called upon to expose what has all happened there in the last few months, what story would they tell? You start to feel that this is going to be an explosive court case. We're going to hear things that make our ears ring. 
Why would God, as judge of all the earth, make his case to his people without the robes of his judge on? Because they don't trust him anymore. They've been complaining against him as their God. They have accused him of being a harsh master and of wearying them with his demands. And rather than simply using his power to put an end to the grumbling, the Lord instead appeals to them. And in so doing, he reveals his tender heart for his spiritual bride. He goes out of his way to win Israel's heart. That's why he calls them three times in this passage. My people. Imagine a husband whose wife has been unfaithful and he could initiate divorce proceedings, but he wants her back. And he pleads with her. And he speaks to her out of all the affection of his heart, revealing his own heart in order to tug at hers. That's how the Lord speaks here. And as you hear these appeals of the Lord and the searching calls to self-examination and repentance and the investigation of your life since the last time you celebrated the Lord's table, or as you hear these claims as a covenant child growing up with God's promises and obligations resting on you through baptism, remember how He comes to you. Even if it cuts, He comes to you saying, My people, listen to me. Remember how he winsomely pleads with you. He could sue you in his courts. And instead he says, you're mine. Now believe it. Now live like it. He's not out to stick it to you. He's not out to give you your comeuppance. He's not out to win a court case and then come out afterwards and say, well, now you see what a rotter my opponent is. Even his sharpest words drip with the love and longing of the God who wants nothing more than to walk with his bride rather than being at odds. And it's this loving approach that unfolds this lawsuit. He doesn't come right away with a long list of sins for which he is suing them. He does something completely unexpected in verse 3. He sits down in the defendant's chair and he says to them, Oh, my people, what have I ever done to you? How have I wearied you? Testify against me. You have your opportunity, he says. List all your complaints about me. Tell this court everything I've done wrong. Do you know how many people there are in this world who would jump at the chance? God is accused of all kinds of things. It's all your fault. How could you let my loved one die? Or how could you let that person take advantage of me? How could you allow all the suffering and misery in this world? Where were you when I needed you most? Why did you let me down? Why are you so far from me? Why don't you answer my prayers? Why don't you help me? Are there times in your life when you think this way about your God? Maybe you don't say it to other people, but do you ever mutter under your breath, I can't believe the Lord is doing this to me. I can't believe the Lord is making sure my hopes and dreams don't come true. The Lord has heard His grumbling people. 
He's heard their sighing and seen their rolling eyes. And that's why his questions are a subtle form of accusation. The Lord is saying, fine, go ahead. Prove it. What have I done to you? List all the awful things. And the second question is just as powerful. God says, how have I wearied you? You ever said to yourself, I am sick and tired of fill in the blanks. Maybe it's long days at the office during busy season at work. Maybe in exasperation as a parent of young children, you want to say, everything you've said and done today has either been whining or fighting. Enough already. Maybe you say it about your own life, the suffering, the fight against sin, the challenges you face. When you say, I'm so tired of that, what you're really saying is, I wish it would just stop. I wish it would all just go away. Have people really been saying this about the living God? Is He like a disobedient child, intolerable, annoying, and wearying? Yes, they have. And quite honestly, when you and I sin, we're doing the same thing. When communion with God is too much for you, when it's readily skipped and avoided, what you're saying is, I'm getting kind of tired of this. It's an annoying chore that's better put off for a while, and, and, and I, I, I just can't feel like it. When you choose those seemingly little sins, as we call them, you're saying to God, I'm tired of you. I'm tired of your standards in my life. I think you've blown it. I think your regulations are overdone. They're messed up. They're just not for me. So what you're really saying to God is, I am wiser, stronger, and smarter than you are, and I have a right to veto what you said. It sounds really crass, doesn't it? But that's what sin is if we would stop sanitizing it. I just want to create my own little idols and do it my way. Maybe you once knew what it was to be fervent in prayer and to be zealous for God and to delight in His Word and to love His commandments and to cherish His people. But now, like a relationship turns sour, like a husband and wife that are so at odds that the one sits on the driveway in the car and thinks, do I really want to go inside tonight? You sigh in your weariness of God. What a devastating set of questions the Lord asks. And how will the people answer? There's what you call a red-faced silence between verses 3 and 4. And they've got nothing to say. Isn't this how it should be? When God puts Himself in the defendant's chair and says, let me have it, what did I ever do to make you sick and tired of me? Can you really come up with one valid complaint? He is God. He has every right and reason to give and to take away in your life, to open and to close doors, to command you concerning your moments and days. How can you say to the potter as a piece of clay, you have no right to form my life? Can you honestly complain about him? And after the people answer not a word, then the Lord spells out what he has done for them. He gave them, verse 4, redemption. They were slaves in Egypt, wearing themselves out, Egyptian whips on their backs, beaten, their children thrown to the crocodiles, worn out by harsh treatments. They were completely helpless. 
And God came and rescued them. He saved them without them being able to offer anything to Him. They didn't pay Him. They couldn't bribe Him. He did it because He wanted to. It was all complete grace. He brought them out by powerful signs. He drowned the obstinate Pharaoh in the Red Sea, and He gave them the wealth of Egypt as they left. He provided in the desert. He gave them the liberty of the sons of God. He fed them with angels' food, rain from heaven. No one else ever got to eat that. No other group of people on earth ever had that kind of redemption. And second, he gave them superior leadership. Moses, the only man in the Old Testament who talked with God face to face like a man talks to his friend. What a mercy to know from God, this is right and this is wrong, so that you don't have to burn your fingers and find out the hard way. God gave them Aaron the priest, and how else could God live among them? Atonement made, forgiveness secured and pronounced and applied, the sacrifices for sin. God gave them Miriam to lead them in song and in worship in the desert, where they sang at the Red Sea of the Lord's deliverance. And how often the songs of God's Word have healed the hearts of the people of God and given you new reason to carry on. Isn't that the thing you miss most during the lockdowns when you're not gathered? Is that hearing one another sing. And what has God done for His new covenant people? He has given Jesus Christ in His death, resurrection, and ascension. He has redeemed His people from the slavery of sin. You can't by yourself break free from your foul lusts any more than Israel could break free from Pharaoh. You are just as helpless as a sinner unless God steps in. And this He has done in Jesus Christ. He sent His own Son in the flesh so that we could see the face of God and hear His words. And He gave Himself as the priest and sacrifice to the cross for sinners. He gives us songs of deliverance and praise that enable us to soar on eagles' wings if we would just pay attention to what we're singing. And the ascended Lord Jesus still sends leaders to His church to serve His Son and His people. Is that something to complain about? This coming week, God will even spread a table before us with the signs and seals of God's broken body and poured out blood. And He will say to His believing people among us, to His bride, this is how much I love and cherish you. Don't you remember what I've done for you? See what great salvation I have brought about. See how I desire that you continually reset yourself in the gospel and believe it and are strengthened by it. God says, what more could I do for you? What is there that I could give you that I have not given you? My fatherly heart, my own son, my Holy Spirit, my promises, all things in Christ will be fully yours one day. How could anyone get tired of such a God? God lists his superior protection in verse 5. Balak, king of Moab, consulted. Balaam answered him. That savage, unprovoked attack, an attempt to use spiritual weapons of mass destruction with the rent-a-curse prophet Balaam, 
and God forced Balaam to bless Israel instead. Now, let me ask you, you who know and love the Lord, isn't this who He's always been for you? In the darkest, most difficult times of your life, those events and heartaches that you never would have chosen, has He not turned your sorrows into blessings and given you reason to sing through the tears because He was your God and He was walking with you in the middle of it all? Is there anything more He could do that He hasn't done? What else happened? Well, God reminds them of everything that happened between Shittim and Gilgal, from Balak's attack to the entry of the promised land. In the fields of Shittim, they committed spiritual and physical adultery against their God, and God remained faithful to them when they were unfaithful to Him. He led them through the Jordan River. Nobody crossed the Jordan River during flood season, but Israel did on dry ground to Gilgal. He renewed His covenant. He gave them the promised land even when it was inhabited with warlike nations that they never could have beaten in a straight-up battle. He did every single thing He promised. And when your heart starts with the complaining, wearied sighs of Israel, one of the best ways to combat this is to list all the things God has done and not to hold Him responsible for things He's never promised. He has never promised you a smooth life. He has never promised His church easy sailing. He has never promised that you'll always get everything you want and ask for. And most of our wearying and our sighs of God are because we hold Him responsible for breaking a promise He never made. Israel might be tempted to say, Yeah, but what about the judgments that are shaking our land? What about our suffering, our loss? Well, doesn't the discipline of the Lord demonstrate His love? Whom He loves, He chastens. He scourges every son He receives. And all of this exposes how foolish the complaints and sighs of His people are. They reveal the righteousness of the Lord and the unreasonable unrighteousness of His people. So much so that the people realize we're not going to win this court case. And so they give in, or at least they make some attempt to be reconciled. And these are little more than wild offers, our second point, verses 6 and 7. At least they're mentioning their transgressions in verse 7 and the sins of their souls. At least they're ready to restore right relationship with God, right? Or are they? Notice that verse 6 is actually just another complaint. What then shall I come with to bow before the Lord? Is there anything that I can bring to bow before the high God? Do you see how they feel the distance between them and God? He has lovingly and tenderly called them three times my people, and they refer to Him as that high big God somewhere way far away. He's listed all the ways He drew near to them, and they're saying... Why are you so far? They're saying we want it to be right, but we don't know how. If God would just come down and tell us, we would do it. And the offers get wilder, each one than the next. They often sacrificed a a, a lamb or a calf of seven days old. And so they're saying, well, what about the one-year-old? And if you've sold cattle and bought cattle, you know the difference in price between them. What about a thousand rams? 
That would cost more. That only happened at the dedication of the temple. What about 10,000 rivers of oil? We might speak of gallons or liters, but what about whole rivers? Well, if that isn't enough, my firstborn son, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul. You see how they exaggerate? They're saying, we want to make it right, and it's never good enough. No matter how hard I try, God is never satisfied. And they're offering everything except the one thing God wants most from them. Psalm 51 spells it out. Broken hearts are in God's sight, more than sacrificial right. Pleading spirits, contrite cries, you, O Lord, will not despise. Without the sacrifice of a broken heart, all these other sacrifices are useless. Do you and I ever come with such wild, exaggerated, accusatory exasperation when the Holy Spirit begins to convict you and deal with you about a pattern of sin in your own life? Sometimes as the Holy Spirit's boring into someone's heart, whether that be for the first time in your life to break through or to restore a wandering sheep, in a last gasp effort to keep the knife of the Word from slicing into the core heart problem of your sin, you can sound just as wild in your thoughts, and so can I. It's never good enough with God. I confessed my sins. I said, I'm sorry. What more does He want? No matter what I do, it's not good enough. No matter what I promise, he won't be satisfied. One Christian poet said it well, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no respite? No, if I could be zealous without ever taking a break, all for sin could not atone. Ten thousand rivers of oil the biggest sacrifices my fevered imagination can come up with. It doesn't work. And then there's this whole other category of complaints. If God would just tell me what's wrong and what to do, we could get on track again. Really, you're saying God's giving me the cold shoulder and the silent treatment. I know I've done something wrong, but God won't tell me what it is. I'm just left standing out there in the cold. I'm willing, but God, who knows? That happens in some of our relationships, doesn't it? I've counseled husbands and wives where the husband will say, you know what, and sometimes I don't even know what I did wrong. I just know it's something, and my wife turns into a porcupine. I can't say or do anything right. Well, there's usually more to the story than isn't there. And, and something's bothering her, but she won't tell me what it is, or he won't say it. No, nope, nothing's wrong. Or as one spouse said, if he can't spell it out and can't see it, then he doesn't have a clue, and he should. It's not how relationships work, is it? And both people know there's unresolved issues. The silent person saying, if you don't know what it is, then you don't have a clue and you need to wake up. And the person who says he doesn't know might just simply be covering up instead of coming clean. 
And now God is being accused this way by Israel, even as they're making their so-called confession of sin. Not much of a confession at all, quite frankly. If someone you were trying to be reconciled with approached you in the language of verses 6 and 7, you would say, well, I guess you're not really ready for this, are you? He's still fighting. She's still blaming everybody except herself. Sometimes the people who need help the most turn against the very one who's trying to help them. And even now, the Lord doesn't answer in kind. He does rebuke the mindset behind the wild offers. And Micah has to respond in verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. Not just in one or two words. There's plenty there. God doesn't play hiding games. That's why He gave Moses to Israel. That's why He gave us His law, both the summary version and the spelled out and applied versions. God has recorded good and evil, right and wrong, blessing and cursing. He spelled out the entire history of the nation of Israel hundreds of years ahead of time. He told them exactly how they were going to respond to Him. The one thing Israel can never say with any honesty and integrity is, God didn't tell me. But then the Lord shows His amazing patience, kindness, and gracious love to His wayward bride because He responds again to their wild offers with His own, our last point, clear requirements, verse 8. Two things in the passage that get us back on track. The first was already mentioned in verse 4. The Lord calls on His people to remember His work, verse 4 and 5. How did God deliver Israel out of Egypt the first time? Did they come with 10,000 rivers of oil then? Did they have to sacrifice their firstborn then? No, they didn't. God came to them and redeemed them by the blood of the Lamb and by the power of His right hand. They didn't come to God with a sacrifice. God came to them and gave them a sacrifice. God saved firstborn Israelite children who otherwise would have died when the destroying angel came. Because God's covenant people are sinners too and need to be saved, first of all, from themselves. God gave the blood of the land that led to His passing over Israel. And God has done so much since. Israel thought the wildest offer they could come up with, the greatest stretch of the imagination, something God never, ever required of them. God even says at one point, it never entered my heart to require this of you, to sacrifice their firstborn son to pay for their sins. It never entered God's heart to require that of us because it had already entered His heart to require that of Himself. He didn't just offer he sent His firstborn Son into this world to pay for their sins. That first Passover in Egypt is just a glimpse ahead of time of God's firstborn Son who supplies the blood and power by which sinners are redeemed, restored, reconciled, renewed, and refreshed. And when God calls His people to remember this great deliverance, He means to say, remember and believe. 
And as you do so, the power and grace of that great deliverance then, accomplished once for all, is applied again to your heart by the Holy Spirit. Remember it. Cherish it. Transfer the weight of your trust onto it again. That's why every Passover, Israel would use these familiar words. Remember at the Passover table. Remember that God is still the same today. And we are better off in the New Testament church. The night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and broke it. He said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Believe what I have done for you. And when the guilt presses heavy, when the wild offers fly up in your heart, remember the broken body and the poured out blood. That's what the Lord uses more than anything else to silence the wildness, to produce the brokenness. That's the real sacrifice He wants because grieving, humbled people delight in a fresh taste and experience of Jesus Christ. Each one of God's people, everyone who has already learned by faith to remember Christ is welcome at the table next week. But the table is for those and only those whose hearts have become tender and soft because of the greatness of His grace. I ask now in God's name to any heart here, a person here, still stuck in the attitude of blind grumbling, of being weary with God. Can't your heart break when you see the firstborn son of the Father agonizing on the cross? When you hear him say, Father, forgive them. When he cries out the most desolate cry that has ever come from human lips, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you not forsake your sins when you think of his agony? How could anything be dearer to your heart than such a Savior? And he's proclaimed to the hardest-hearted rebel in this court case, remember him, believe in him, be transformed from grumbling and wild accusations of every kind to praise. And sometimes those wild accusations, we tend to bounce off each other too, don't we? And we lose sight of the glory of what God has done. Do you see now in the lawsuit course how the lawsuit just breaks down? God could sue Israel, and instead he sues his own son in his courtroom on their behalf. Jesus Christ is found guilty, and he's sent to represent his sinful people. Who ever heard of a lawsuit ending with the judge charging his own son instead of the guilty people? Just once that it happened, and God did it. And he's going to picture it again. What love and grace. There's another clear requirement here in verse 8. Repentance. And that's the point of the last half of verse 8. God has shown us what He requires. He requires doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God. Do you see that God isn't the big bad bully that Israel's complaining and that the 
diseased, snake-bitten sons and daughters of Adam seem to think is their natural theology. God is mean. Doing justly means you walk in all integrity yourself, holding to God's commandments and how you treat others. Loving mercy means you're just eager to be gracious to other people because God has been so gracious to you. How can you hold a grudge against someone else? How can you gnaw old bitterness in your heart? How can you let it erupt on your social media platform? How can Dutch Reformed people be infamous in the community for the vitriol of their words? Shameful, sick. When the gracious God of this passage is the Savior who He is. It's not a very long summary, is it? But it says an awful lot. And this is the summary of what God requires of you and me in repentance this coming week. Just remembering His Son is not enough. That's the foundation, but it is to lead to you doing justice and to loving mercy and to walking humbly. And when you're walking humbly before God, there's no more room for lashing out and angry words. And even when you have to speak the truth, you learn to do so like God does in this passage, with such a tender-hearted plea to His people. Where does God's lawsuit end? It kind of leaves us hanging, doesn't it? There's a reason for this. We're in the day of grace. On the one hand, God sued His own Son on the cross, and through Him sinners can be declared free in His courts and reconciled to Him. But if you read the rest of the passage, you discover that there were many who did not repent. Therefore, the lawsuit against them led to the judgments in the rest of this chapter. It's true today, too. If you do not sue yourself before God and each other by confession and repentance and faith in Christ, God will continue His lawsuit against you and He wins 100% of the time. Because all that's left when you and I finally stand before His judgment seat is red-faced silence. So be wise. Bow humbly in the name of His beloved Son and show the grace of your God in how tenderly He pursues His wicked wrong bride. And if you've already done that, don't you agree that this passage is the best lawsuit you've ever heard of? That the end result is the most amazing turn of lawsuit that has ever been seen in this world, and that this kind of lawsuit is worth trumpeting to the ends of the earth. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God in heaven, we bow before your throne of grace, stunned with amazement 
at your gentle tenderness, you who have every right to thunder from the heavens, you've placed yourself in the defendant's seat. You have come so near to us, and you have said to us again, you are my people. And so we pray that your grace and nearness and kindness would thaw our hearts and would break through and would melt us and would bring us to where we need to be, not with wild offers and accusations towards you or each other, but with gentle kindness and honesty. When we see it in this light, Lord, we have to say, how could we ever be tired of you? How could we ever complain about you with our thoughts or with our actions? It's wrong. It's inexcusable. It's unacceptable. It's sin. So we humble ourselves before you and pray that you would cleanse us, restore us, refresh us, renew us, Help us to walk humbly with you and each other this week. To love justice and mercy. And to remember our place before you. Make this a truly blessed week of preparation. Where our broken hearts rejoice in the fullness of your grace. And where our hardened hearts become tender. And where our words overflow from the abundance of a heart that is awed by the extent of your grace. Keep any of us from abusing this table in an unworthy manner and grant us your grace and light for the glory of your name we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.